The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A here at Stein Online. It is Friday, October 13th, 2023. I am Andrew Lawton sitting in for the great Mark Stein as he gears up for legal battles on two continents, which I'm not actually sure he's ever had at the same time before. He certainly had legal battles on various continents. I think he might have even been sued in Antarctica, just uh, given what is the likely scenario. But I'm not sure he's ever had two continental legal battles at the same time. So I'm referring, of course, to the looming trial against uh, Michael E. Mann and his hawk. Stick. I'm also referring to the great battle against Ofcom in the United Kingdom. Uh, but uh, before we get too deeply into things here, I should, in keeping with tradition, tell you that it is just after 7 a.m. Friday morning on Baker Island. It is 12 p.m. in Las Vegas. Uh, it is also 12 p.m. in Los Angeles and San Francisco. So if you've swam through the feces of the sidewalks to get back to your computer in San Francisco, we welcome you. It is uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon in Eureka, which brings us to where I am in London, Ontario, just after 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, 9 p.m. in Vatican City, 10 p.m. in Addis Ababa. And I will also tell you that in the wonderful city of Jerusalem, it is Friday night at 10.02 p.m. And in Gaza City, it is uh, 4,000 B.C., as a matter of fact. Uh, who cares what time it is? They are living in the Stone Age. When we talk about the Hamas officials that are in charge and their supporters who are not just taking to the streets in Gaza City, but in Arab and Muslim countries and even ostensibly Western countries around the world with the unifying, peaceful, and loving message that the Jews should all be killed. That is a message that is not just uh, coming out of countries that we would look at as being backwards. This is coming from students at Harvard University, students at York University in the uh, city of Toronto. It's coming from all of the so-called Ivy League institutions. Now, let me say first and foremost here, as the token libertarian, I take a very absolute view on freedom of speech. And I actually believe that it is more useful for these people to out themselves. And I support their right to freedom of speech right up until the point that they are threatening or, I would say, using their speech to take away the liberty of others. But I can also curiously point out how many people there are that are only inconsistently in support 
of free speech. I just saw a few moments ago, as a matter of fact, and I, I don't even know if I can find it on my computer now because it was just like scrolling by. But uh, one of the uh, big muckety-mucks at Harvard, in fact, it might have even been the muckety-muck at Harvard, issued a, a video statement, Claudine Gay, the president of the school, talking about how important freedom of expression is. Well, Harvard is a school that a few years ago withdrew its acceptances to students because they had been posting naughty and inappropriate memes on Facebook. These are the, you know, 16, 17-year-old students that were applying to go to Harvard, and they had their, their admissions withdrawn, their offers of admission withdrawn. Harvard didn't stand up for freedom of expression at the time, but if you want to chant uh, death to the Jews, if you want to support the executions of children and seniors and the kidnapping of Holocaust survivors, that is absolutely your right, according to Harvard. Now, this is something that we are seeing increasingly across the West and the East, all parts of the world right now. We are right now, as I broadcast, in the midst of what Hamas declared a day of rage around the world. That was the call from a former Hamas chief safely in his mansion in Qatar, where the Qataris have been housing Hamas leadership for quite some time. And he decided from the comfort of his villa in Qatar that he would call for a day of rage, asking Arabs and Muslims around the world to take to the streets and number one, be angry. That was what they wanted. Be angry. It wasn't peacefully protest. It wasn't get your message out. It wasn't put your wittiest slogan on a placard. It was get out to the streets, be angry, give your money to those who are fighting against Jews and against Israel in the Middle East. And if you're in a neighboring country, hey, hell, you should pick up a gun and join them. These were among the criteria given for this day of rage. Now, we're seeing people decide to rage on. There was an Israeli diplomat in Beijing this morning that was stabbed in a very, very brutal way, as the uncomfortable video showed. There was a stabbing in France and multiple stabbings in France, as a matter of fact. There have been in uh, Canada and the United States and the UK Jewish schools that have decided to close for the day because they cannot ensure student safety. And I suspect at Shabbat services this evening, there are going to be some unpleasant encounters that come. And I, I should point out, I, I am saying this as a Gentile. I'm a non-Jew who's never had to deal with the persecution that is innate in Judaism and has been throughout history, but I have seen it. And I have spoken to people who have lived it in the past tense and live it in the present tense and will continue to live it in the future tense. And when this was called Israel's 9-11, very early on, it was uh, the, whichever Israeli official it was that coined that was, I think, very astutely understanding the significance of this event. But unfortunately, as it's become so momentous and monumental for Israelis and Jews, it's also become all that important for those who seek the annihilation of the Jewish people and of the Jewish state, which is why they're rallying around this and galvanizing just as Israel's supporters are. All of this 
is tremendously difficult to watch. And, you know, people like Mark Stein, I haven't spoken to Mark about this. I, I've read his columns in the past week, and I would encourage you to as well. But they're well within their rights to stand up and say, I told you so. This was an, ideolo an ideology that is not at all surprising, that was entirely foreseeable and predictable ever since 9-11. When, I mean, I, I don't like quoting, my, I've interviewed Maya Angelou, and she was actually a lovely woman when she was alive. And, I mean, maybe she's still lovely in, in death. I just haven't spoken to her since then. But the thing about Maya Angelou was that she gave this quote, which uh, oftentimes is brought up in all those like insufferable inspirational graphics, but it's when people show you who they are, believe them. And I think as a matter of public policy, we could probably adopt that on immigration and specifically on issues with these countries that are at war perpetually with Israel. These people have showed us time and time again who they are. And we in the West have collectively decided to not believe them. And, and that's why I spoke about this months ago on the show when we saw parental rights issues uh, pop up in, in Canada and the U.S. in particular. And we saw the schism that was forming on the woke left with the transgender activists and the Muslims. Now, the Muslims were like the favored victim group to the left uh, since 9-11, but all of a sudden, when the Muslims were against the trans activists, the left just threw the Muslims under the bus and called them racist, bigot, white supremacist. I don't know how they were like brown white supremacists, but nevertheless, they were and said they were going to support the trans activists. And now that Israel is the enemy to these people, the Muslims are the good guys again. So you have to keep up with this. Now the Muslims are the oppressed, they're the colonized, and they're the people that are being victimized by those evil white supremacist settler colonialist Israelis. This is the battle line that's been drawn. Uh, and don't get me wrong, after this conflict, the Muslims will go back to being the racist, right-wing, uh, white supremacist, transphobic bigots, and uh, all of this other stuff goes on. Like, it's not even worth pointing out as much anymore. I will. The utter inconsistency in what these people on the left advocate for. And just to give you an example of this, I mentioned York University, which has always been a hotbed of anti-Semitism. It's a university in Toronto, not a particularly impressive school, but they have a rather reputable law school there, and it has a, a rather large footprint in the city. The York University Students Association, uh, one of the students associations, I can't remember which one it is, has a put out a statement calling out this attack as justified and necessary. I shouldn't say calling it out. They, they've said about this pogrom that it is justified and necessary. Now, the president of the York University, uh, it's the UU, the YUGSA, so this is the Graduate Student Association, is a, I was going to say he's a man, but I may have to withdraw that. Uh, they is a person called Ali Reza Gorgani. And to read the biography of them, it's Ali Reza Gorgani Dorhe, they, them, is a polydisciplinary, art, polydisciplinary artist, I haven't seen that word before, uh, and a migrant worker living in uh, Tocoronto, Treaty 13. They holds a master's degree in theater direction from the University of Tehran. So, we have a non-binary artist from Iran who somehow believes 
that their interests are in the Palestinian cause. Now, I don't think they, them, flies in Tehran. I'm not sure if there's a Farsi equivalent to the word non-binary, if there's a Farsi non-binary pro-town. I'm afraid I, I don't speak Persian. But someone who's lived in Iran and studied in Iran that is looking around and enjoying the freedom that Canada offers and looking over to the Middle East and saying, you know what, Israel is the bad guy here, or the bad person. We, we don't want to gender Israel, right? But this is entirely common now. It's, it's the, the utter absurdity of that queers against Israeli apartheid nonsense that emerged a few years ago, where all of these people who would be executed if they were to live their lives in much of the Middle East are holding up Israel as being this great violator of human rights, this great purveyor of injustice. And all of this is entirely, entirely common and predictable, and it's the unspoken reality now that you can't even talk about. So I, I with that preamble, I will get to your questions here, and I, I suspect it will probably lean very heavily on what's going on in the Middle East and around the world uh, related to that. And I, I'm ap- if that takes up the whole show, I think that is entirely appropriate given the circumstances. Eagle Patriot Minuteman1776 says, Dear Mark, well, it's Andrew, but I hope I am a, a useful substitute for you. My only thoughts about the new war between the Palestinians and Israelis is that the Israelis always treated the Palestinians with kid gloves. The Israelis and the West need to realize that the only way to deal with barbarians is by treating them like they are barbarians, which means keeping them in a constant state of fear and terror. I am a firm believer that there are certain retrograde retrograde populations at home and abroad that need to be treated horribly so that the rest of us can live in peace. Muslims rank above everyone else in that category. Israel can start by leveling Gaza and starving half its population to death. Afterward, treat it like it's 1940s Poland. All Hamas leaders should be executed and shot without trial. Arrest quotas should be assigned to the Israeli police and Israelis should nationalize and control the Gazan food supply. The ant- So I, the, the last line, if I, I, I don't even want to read it. People can read it in the Q&A themselves, just because I know that if I read it, it'll be, uh, you know, me saying it will be taken out of context and people will forget that I read it. But the, the one thing I'll, I'll point out here is that Israel is a country that is the epitome of having to separate reality from theory in that all of your theoretical outlooks on human rights, on international law, on how the world should be, the, I, the Wilsonian idealism are completely irrelevant when you look at the facts on the ground of Israel. For example, I would not look at Israel and say, well, you know, uh, maybe the you know letter of the international law suggests they're wrong, so we're going to tell them not to do this and not to do that and not to do that and expect any different response than Israel has given these findings in the, fa- in the past because it's easy for the UN Special Rapporteur on this or that to uh, say what they're going to say, but this is the reality. I mean, when, when you have Hamas terrorists paragliding into Israel, uh, shooting, I saw one video today, shooting through porta-potties, not knowing who or what is inside of every one of them, uh, kidnapping children and the elderly, the facts on the ground render the theory of what the world is supposed to be completely and utterly useless. 
And Gaza is a perfect example of that, because I don't actually agree entirely that the Gazan people, the Palestinian people who are not uh, involved in the conflict, should be the ones to suffer. I, and I think Israel does go out of its way to protect civilian life. So I, I believe I disagree with Eagle Patriot Minuteman 1776 in, in that sense, in that I do not believe it is appropriate to go out of your way to punish entire populations. However, and this is the caveat here that I think is very important, Israel and Hamas are locked in this same cycle and the same pattern. Israel does the responsible, just thing to do. They go out of their way to avoid civilian casualties. They uh, try to evacuate buildings. In this particular uh, moment, they're evacuating or urging the evacuation of the entire north of Gaza so that everyone moves to the south. Israel bombs the crap out of the north, and then presumably everyone will uh, be told to move from the south to the north, and they'll bomb the crap out of the south. I'm assuming that's how it's going to go. But the thing about this is that Hamas is doing what Hamas does. They're telling the people to stay put. They're saying don't leave because they know that Israel's going to proceed and they want to be able to hold up a bunch of dead Gazans as evidence that Israel is this this, uh, perpetual force of war crimes. And this is what happens every single time. It's why Hamas fires its rockets from civilian centers. It's why schools and hospitals are used as Hamas compounds, because Hamas wants to use its people as human shields, as tools of propaganda. So they know that with them acting the way they do, Israel is forced to show restraint. And it clearly isn't working because here we are in the same situation we've been in for many years. In this particular case, the death toll is much higher than it has been in past individual attacks. But all of this is going to be cyclical. It's going to continue to be cyclical. And when Israel responds by saying, all right, we're going to turn off the power, we're going to turn off the water... That's where, yeah, individual people are being affected by this. But the reality on the ground, the reality on the ground is such that Israel has to control this border. And this is where it's so infuriating to see all of these nonsense condemnations that come from the human rights watches and the amnesties of the world that are completely devoid of the realities on the ground. Matt writes, the Biden administration, or at least Secretary of State Blinken, is so far being surprisingly firm in supporting Israel. Uh, Netanyahu showing him pictures of butchered children seems to have given him a backbone for now. The weather it remains after his return from the Middle East remains to be seen. It reminds me of Kissinger's quip, to be an enemy of America can be dangerous, but to be a friend is fatal. I hope it proves not to be the case. How firm will Trudeau et al. be in supporting Israel as this conflict intensifies? One thing I will say about Canada is that it has said the right things when it comes to Israel in this particular conflict. I mean, Canada does the finger wagging uh, at every other stage when it comes to, you know, Israeli occupations, they say, and all of that. But when it comes down to it, Israel has an ally in Canada. Now, nowhere near as much as it did when Stephen Harper was the prime minister. That is most certainly the case. And uh, nowhere near what it had in the United States when Donald Trump was president. Canada 
has still shown no interest in relocating its embassy from Tel Aviv to the Israeli capital of Jerusalem. No interest whatsoever. Now, if there's a conservative government in the future, maybe that will change. But Canada has said the right things at this point. Now, one thing I will point out, though, is that both Canada and the U.S., are pussyfooting around the Qatar issue. So uh, Blinken right now is uh, in Qatar. He was sitting down with the, uh, whatchamacallit here, the emir, whose name I've forgotten. He was chatting with the Minister of Foreign Affairs there. He's doing all of this stuff. Uh, Nowhere in the public statements or the readouts have I seen? Oh, and by the way, we asked them uh, where uh, you know we can go and have a chat with that Hamas guy who's living down the street. They have not been interested in doing that. So uh, the West has chosen to avoid the obvious with Qatar, which is that it is a country that is providing safe haven and support to Hamas's leadership. It may well be the country out of which these attacks on Israel were planned. So that part is being left unsaid. And I saw there was some Qatari guy that was going off about how, you know, unless uh, Israel stops bombing Gaza, they'll cut off the world supply of gas. And I'm assuming it's just bluster, but Qatar is not our friend in this. And it's actually quite shameful how many countries are looking at them as being a friend. KD writes, how was the day of jihad or the day of rage in the Great White North? I don't see many people standing for it in the States, but maybe I am naive. Will they in Canada? The first thing I'll I'll point out, Katie, is that it's not over yet. I, I mean, I'm glad that we haven't seen some mass casualty event take place yet, but and I hope we don't, but uh, the day is not over yet. Uh, I think that a lot of Jewish people, I mean, I spoke yesterday on my regular show to the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, who's a, a Jewish woman herself, Melissa Lansman. And Melissa Lansman was telling me that a lot of Jews in Canada are just living in fear. And it's not to say they aren't resilient. It's not to say they don't find comfort in their family and their faith and their communities. But but basically, they are dealing with uh, this overt threat on their lives. And there was a, a really... I, to be honest, I, I'm not entirely sure what I think about it yet. So maybe as I'm telling you about the video, I'll formulate a, a better position on it. But a video I saw, and I don't know what day it was from, it was from these three rather young-looking Jewish university students who were at some rally on campus. It was, you know, Palestinian flags and all the usual anti-Israel placards. And this one in particular was just sobbing as she asked a university official why they were letting this protest happen. And she, sa- she said, they want us to die. They want us to die. They want to kill us. She, she, you can tell how emotional she is, and understandably so. And I don't know anything about this girl, and I, I don't want to extrapolate too much from it, but I, I have to feel for a lot of young Jewish progressive university students, they're probably right now seeing the logical and foreseeable extension of wokeness on campus in a very real way, which they may or may not have been a part of in the past. I mean, if you're one of these ultra-tolerant, ultra-progressive university students and you are you happen to be Jewish, and but other than that, you're like, yep, yeah, you know, we need to support the trans and do the land acknowledgements and do this and do this and have the Muslim Students Association and have the Gay Straight Alliances and have all of that. And then a protest comes up 
And some of these diverse people that you've bent over backwards being inclusive of are getting up there and using their free speech and their academic freedom to say uh, that the Jews should be annihilated. Uh, it's hard not to say, okay, maybe I made a mistake. And again, I mean, for all I know, this uh, young woman may have been a raging right-winger who's been right on this issue at the time. But I, I know that in the university communities that I've been following in the last few days, there seem to be some very uncomfortable realizations that are taking place by people that didn't know this was entirely and utterly predictable. And to bring it back to KD's question in the Canadian context here, I know there were uh, three men yesterday... Uh, Arab men, by all accounts, who were arrested outside a Jewish school in Toronto. And this was, I think, a very, a very upsetting incident. Thankfully, it didn't end up in, in any violence, but three men were arrested at uh, the Jewish school. It's called uh, CHAT, the Community Hebrew Academy of Toronto. And uh, there were just three adults, Arab men, that were at the school making threats. Now, whether they intended on following through on those, I don't know. Uh, they're arrested, and I don't even know if they've been charged yet. I, I know that the police have been uh, apparently investigating it, and they've called in the hate crimes unit and all that. But uh, this is what's happening around the world right now. It's, it's not just a, a Canadian thing. Elisa Angel writes, Is there any true distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? This is an incredibly important question. Lisa, and I've spent much of the last uh, however many days now, six days, thinking about it. And the real answer is yes. Yes, there is a difference. You can be an anti-Zionist without being an anti-Semite. I think there are uh, certain sects of Judaism, uh, notably some of the ultra-Orthodox sects, that are anti-Zionist, and they're certainly not anti-Semitic. They are, are proud and devout Jews themselves. There are people who, for reasons of just being anti-nationalist in general— will reject Zionism, and there are people that uh, don't like the implications of, of Zionism. I mean, if you're a, a radical egalitarian and you don't particularly like uh, any ethno-states, you'll be anti-Zionist. Now, uh, there are lots of reasons that you can reject or refute Zionism, but I am going to go out and say that the vast, vast, vast majority of people who call themselves anti-Zionist are not taking any of these positions. They are unabashedly anti-Semites. And why this is so important is because anti-Zionism, despite having a pseudo-legitimate uh, manifestation that someone could invoke, anti-Zionism has basically become the politically saleable way of being an anti-Semite, in the same way that you say, no, 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 I, uh, I, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm just, uh, just anti-Zionist. This is what people will do. It's like basically the Israel equivalent of, oh, I have a gay friend, or I have a black friend. It's the way you cloak your anti-Semitism. You go, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm just an anti-Zionist, I have no issue with the Jewish people. No, just the Jewish state, which exists because the Jewish people would be slaughtered were they anywhere else in the world, which is often the uh, part that uh, the so-called anti-Zionists leave off. So the issue that I would take is that people are hiding their anti-Semitism in criticism of Israel in criticism of Zionism. And uh, both of them you can criticize. You can criticize the Israeli government. You can criticize Zionism. You can do all that. But 
people who do this more often than not, I find, are just trying to hide their anti-Semites. Now, this is, I think, the one important aspect of all of this that I would point out time and time again. By the way, sorry, if I my words faded for a moment, I just saw on Twitter that I have been... I, I, I've been made into a meme where I've been part of the Canadian axis of stupidity. I am a chicken hawk, a person who speaks out in support of war yet has avoided active military service. And then it's no more blood for Israel. So I've, I've been memed and it looks like they've used the font of friends, which I, I find odd, but um, it's funny. I, I've actually never stood up and said, I support war. I've said, I support Israel and Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, so this idea that uh, supporting Israel's response to rocket attacks and terror attacks makes you a warmonger, I don't quite get. Um, as for enlisting, I don't think I would be of much use to any military, although I guess you could hide an army behind me, so in that sense, I would probably be quite helpful as a, a bit of a human shield as long as that lasted. But uh, the, sorry, I'm getting memed in real time. That was the, the, the distraction there that popped up on my screen. But uh, to go back to Elisa's question, I think that if you're to look at the majority of people who criticize the Israeli state and the existence of the Israeli state, you'll find that they are either explicitly anti-Semitic or they are so devoid of historic and political and geographic knowledge that they don't realize the inherent anti-Semitism of their position. So uh, they're either anti-Semites or they're idiots. And uh, in some cases, they may in fact be both. Here is, this is a bit of a long question. I'll try to uh, pick up the gist of it, though. Uh, John Fachi writes, Jeremiah 23, say, I always love starting with the scripture. Thank you for this. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There's no more politics. These parlor games are the folly of fools. There is only good and evil. The war has come to us. Discussing strategies of 20th century politics is a distraction no matter who is the source. I pray for Mark's health as it is clear this exercise will end sooner rather than later. I thank Mark for bringing this forum of truth and honesty to the world. But the first salvo of evil has been fired. And if you are reading this as a club member rather than hearing it spoken, then unfortunately you will begin to see events sort themselves out. Decide where you stand, whether it is with good or with evil. I, I realize this may not actually be a question the longer I read it, but I'll still continue. Do you expect to vote safely on November 5th, 2024 in America and sit safely by your television to wait for the results? Forget moral relativism, forget neutral intellectualism, forget political parties. There is only one reality. There is not my reality and your reality. There is one reality. It was written through Judean prophets and saints by the author of Goodness and Peace, uh, there is only one God known on this earth who is not bound by this planet. Uh, and I'm just uh, trying to get to the thesis here. Uh, do not blame God. Christians, there is only one faith, and it is the faith practiced by Jesus Christ. So his sheep are being called back to their fold. Well, as it turned out, there was no question there. But um, nevertheless, I, I think John outlines the stakes of this. And I, I think that, you know, to broaden it beyond the American election dimension of that, which is a, a legitimate enough question, I do think people have to accept the existence of good and evil. And that's the first step. And uh, one of the big problems of the 
woke left. And I, I don't mean to trivialize what's happening by talking about the woke left, which sounds like a, a punchline, but is that they've, they've got such a distorted image of what evil is. Because to them, there is no real good and evil in the world. To them, evil is using the wrong pronouns. To them, evil is making a racially insensitive joke. To them, evil is not letting someone use the preferred bathroom of their choice. That, like, and, and when that is what evil is, you don't actually have the capacity to recognize and understand and respond to real evil. And this is a society that has been raised, what, three generations now removed from the Holocaust. They have not yet been immersed in their world in a real evil that, they, that is as so apparent and so clear as the Holocaust was to them. And they've created this world, this bubble-wrapped, bullshit world. And I apologize for the language, but it seems the only appropriate response to what's happening right now. This world in which not having a therapy dog to pet in your exam season is some violation of human rights. So you look at a savage, backwards, terrorist death cult that does not support women's rights, that doesn't support gay rights, that doesn't support uh, pronouns, that doesn't support the therapy dogs, that doesn't support anything that these woke left progressive losers bend over backwards trying to instill in every corner of society in the West. And they don't actually care because they've created this good versus evil dichotomy, which is based on this very false binary between oppressor and oppressed. And it's the application of a theoretical construct onto a reality that does not fit it. So they believe that in anti-colonial studies, that the only real dynamic that matters is the, col the colonizer versus the colonized, the oppressor versus the oppressed. So they try to put that, they project that image onto any dynamic, onto any situation. So here they say, well, you know, we've been told that colonialism is bad. So Israel is, uh, well, we, they must be the colonizer in this case. And, and like the fact that that is completely devoid of historic knowledge they don't really care about because history itself is a white nationalist, evil racist construct. But what they do is they, they project that onto what's happening there. They don't understand it. They don't care to understand it. And it's how you end up with a non-binary Iranian, I don't want to say refugee, but a non-binary Iranian expat uh, standing up with the people that are trying to annihilate the Jewish state. Chris Davies writes, Andrew, welcome back. Sorry, I got ranty there. Andrew, welcome back. In what mad time does the citizenry of the developed world allow a day of jihad to drive them from the streets, force Jewish schools to close, and allow terrorist sympathizers to call for the annihilation of Israel with zero pushback from governments, or more worryingly, we the people? Folks need to understand that the future is now in the multiculti world of planet Zongo, that used to pass for the developed world, as Mark said only last Friday, it is time to panic. Keep well, and all the best to Mark and the team. So, one of the challenges here, and it's a very fair question, Chris, is that 
it's difficult for a lot of people to understand what they're going to do in a situation like this. You know, I actually saw someone uh, tweet the other day, and they were getting dragged, I, I felt, quite unfairly for it. It was one of these progressive academic types that said, you know, I'm kind of realizing now that maybe I didn't quite understand entirely what I was being warned about, about some of the values that exist in multicultural societies. And I actually thought that was a, a very brave realization from someone who I, I looked her up, had you know spent a fair bit of the last few years being uh, progressive and open-minded and tolerant and all the things you're supposed to do. And I, I don't think she's abandoning those views, but she's realizing, okay, maybe I, maybe I missed a little key bit of this nuance. Now, uh, look, too little, too late. Yeah, absolutely. But I do believe we need to encourage people that are at least prepared to admit that. I, I don't know if you followed this, and if you spend any time on X, as it's now called, formerly Twitter, uh, like I do, well, first off, my condolences, but there was a big debate over the last three days, and it's arguably a debate that's still ongoing, about, and I apologize if this is uh, triggering for you, not that I'm one for trigger warnings, but a debate about whether Hamas beheaded infants. It started with a claim from an Israeli reporter. She was repeating something that had been told to her by IDF soldiers. Uh, this particular report really formed the basis of this, and the, the allegation went around the world. And then people started to say, well, hang on, there's no evidence of this. It's just one reporter uh, reporting it based on hearsay from soldiers. And then you had a couple of other journalists say, well, we've seen pictures and none of those pictures were published, so people started to get very skeptical. And then eventually, uh, the Israeli government published a, a picture of a bloody dead infant in a crib. And the argument they gave was, we didn't want to have to show this, but you need to see what's happening. And there have been other photos now that have showed just the brutal fate that awaited several infants at the hands of these disgusting, disgusting thugs. And even with photographic evidence, People have been so committed to saying it didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen. I, I wished it hadn't happened because of the sheer brutality of it, the sheer evil of it. A lot of the anti-Israel people out there wanted it to not happen because it would have really challenged or undermined what it is they've spent the last six days defending. And I'll say who it is they've spent the last six days defending. And that is... The difficult part. But of course, it's easy to understand how Holocaust denial happens because you look at people that even in real time with evidence, with photos, with testimony are describing what's happening right now. And people are saying, well, uh, you know, I'm not sure about this. Uh, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I think it happened. Israel's done. Or, or it's and when, when that shatters, when that goes away, the argument changes to, okay, well, maybe it did happen, but Israel's using white phosphorus, and but Israel has civilian casualties and this and that. So people that have actually been prepared to say that beheading and burning and maiming infants is, uh, okay, maybe I wouldn't do it, but, uh, but they're being oppressed. And this is what happens when you're oppressed. You overthrow your colonial oppressors. And it's what happens when people read this nonsense anti-colonial literature 
and try to just form this narrative in which anyone throwing off a perceived oppressor is a hero and you can do whatever you want because if you're an oppressed people, you have a license to do whatever you want by any means necessary is the line you'll see. Carl writes, Andrew, thanks for taking the Q&A today. I'll have some Canadian content questions next time on Maple Syrup and Hockey, but something more serious this week. Are the splits we're seeing between the money and muscle camps of the left over Hamas's atrocities a sign of a permanent split or just a temporary blip in the left's long march against Western civilization? I, I won't answer that yet. I find if you don't make predictions, you can't be wrong about them later on. But I also think it depends. So to inject some Canadian content in my answer there, Carl, this weekend, the New Democratic Party of Canada is having its big convention. Now, just to contextualize this, the NDP is Canada's version of the Lib Dems, if you're British. It's Canada's version of, I guess, the Democratic Socialists in the U.S. context. It's like the group that you'd align with the squad, with AOC, with all of that. Like the leader of the NDP uh, has done like some weird live streams with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So uh, that's where the NDP is. They're the left wing, like the left wing party further left than Justin Trudeau is in Canadian politics. And the NDP has an anti-Semitism problem in Canada, just as, you know, left wing parties everywhere do. And what's been interesting is that the Hamas atrocities this particular time were so brutal and so extreme that Everyone, ha everyone with any position of leadership had to condemn it. And the NDP was the last party to do it, so obviously they were the slowest to, but they had to. But it caused a schism, because all of a sudden then labor groups started speaking up, and like the unions in Canada have been just the most viciously anti-Jewish and anti-Israel in the last week. And then all of these people who are from like the left wing of this left wing party have been speaking up to condemn their leader saying, you know, you're a sellout and how dare you and I'm going to reevaluate it. So this party is having its convention this weekend. And I know that it's going to become this like battle between the anti-Semites and the people who are genuinely more moderate or at least would like to be seen as more moderate. And I'm interested in seeing that unfold uh, so that I have a better sense of how the left is going to navigate this in the future. And, and I'll say, I mean, Israel is gearing up for, it sounds like, tomorrow, maybe Sunday, a very large counteroffensive, which is why they're trying to evacuate the northern half of Gaza. And I know that when Israel starts its response, its major response, we're going to start seeing all of the the war porn out of Gaza and we're starting we're we're going to start to see images of dead Palestinians of dead Palestinian children of seniors of infants and the moral high ground that some unlikely characters in the west have given Israel will start to go away and it will become more justifiable for these people to either stay silent or to start actively opposing Israel again. So I think that's going to be what happens here. So actually, I think the left will probably stay uh, exactly where it's been. And anyone who spoke up to condemn Hamas will go back to uh, defending a lot of what they do in the coming days and, and weeks and, and then years. 
Eric writes, uh, he, Eric's going to, I, I say no to predictions. Eric's going to make a prediction. Good. Andrew and fellow club members, I am going to make a bold prediction. The real winners of the war between Hamas and Gaza, as well as the war between Ukraine and Russia, will not be the belligerents themselves, but the weapons manufacturers and so-called intelligence services that once again have failed to anticipate, let alone prevent another atrocity. Do you think that war is the answer in these matters? And if so, do you actually trust the competence of those who would be charged with carrying out that war? I don't personally blame those calling for expelling the Arabs out of the Gaza Strip permanently. I would want the same thing if I were an Israeli. And truth be known, I'm wondering if it's gotten to that point. But if the Israelis go that far, where do those Arabs go? Call me selfish, but I don't want them coming to Iowa, nor do I expect most anyone else, when being honest with themselves, are looking to take in millions of radicalized and angry Muslims. What is the solution to this? So I, you, you touched on a couple of important things there, Eric. And as for your prediction, I mean, absolutely. The winners of war are the military-industrial complex, which used to be a left-wing term, but I, I don't think anyone can deny there exists a military-industrial complex that makes big money from war and conflict. Now, uh, where there may be some disagreements is about whether these people are the ones orchestrating it or do they just know that war is inevitable in how politicians are. I also, though, think, and I go back to that meme I shared about myself a few moments ago, being called a warmonger for standing up to support Israel's defense of itself. I'm actually not calling for any war. I'm not calling for any conflict. But I also think Israel is perfectly within its right to respond, because not responding is giving Hamas a great win as well, because it's showing that there are no consequences and no penalties for inflicting such harm on Israel and Israeli people and on citizens, and then uh, further to that, on, on innocent people around the world. On the, the second part, which is the, the geopolitics of this and the migration aspects, one thing, I, I read a quote in, I think it was a Reuters piece, and they may have been quoting Al Jazeera or something like that, but some 20-year-old Gazan who was uh, saying that he refused to go along with the evacuation plans. He said, I, I'm staying here. And there are a lot of people like that that are saying, look, this is my home. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. And that is their right. I mean, it's a right that if you continue to live in a war zone that comes with the reality that you may end up being a casualty of that war. And that's a, a choice that you are prepared to make in that case. The thing that people forget is that there is no such thing as a Palestinian. I mean, this is a, a term that was invented in the 1960s. Well, I, no, it, it's a term that predates the 1960s, but it's modern usage was invented in the 1960s as basically a way to, to, to create an identifiable group that could then be held up as being an oppressed people by the Jewish state. That was where Palestinian came from. I mean, it used to just be referring to people who lived in Palestine, uh, the area historically known as that, uh, whether they were Jewish or Arab. Uh, the Arabs living in Gaza and the West Bank are Arabs. They're, they're, I mean, they're Palestinian by identification, but that is not a demonstrable or discrete ethnic group. And why that matters is because the entire narrative of this, this people that have been denied their basic right actually crumbles. Like, if I were a sympathizer to the Hamas cause... 
the question I would be asking is, well, where is Egypt? Why is Egypt not letting them in? Why is Jordan not taking them? Why are all of these Arab countries not? And the answer is clear, because they don't want to deal with these people. They don't want to import this. I, I mean, the, the, the Palestinians, such as they are, have been completely abandoned by the Arab world, which, I mean, if you want to get conspiratorial about it, the, the Arab world, I suspect, loves having this group there because it gives them an opportunity to create a punching bag for uh, their attacks on Israel because they can just point to this group that they're not doing anything to, this, to support either. I mean, Iran has funneled large amounts of money and resources into backing Hamas. They have not put money into humanitarian aid because they want the people to be casualties that they can then lay the blame for at Israel's feet. A clockwork cabbage, which is a, a name I would love to hear more about at some point, says, no surprise, but the West's more deficient types have declared themselves by actually parading around in support of the murderous predations of Hamas. Even knuckleheads and BLM have joined the fray. Yeah, just on that, I think it was BLM Chicago that posted this like graphic that was venerating a paraglider, like the people that had, you know, paraglided, paraglid, paraglode, glided, glided, whatever they did into, I, I, know, I know what it is. At some point, it just becomes funny to get it wrong every time. But they did that into Israel and they were like posting this as though it was some like act of defiance that we should be celebrating. Uh, whatever criticisms one may level Israel's way, there is absolutely no moral equivalence between it and the bloodthirsty jihadis that are perpetuating outrages as we speak. It's a mystery how anyone in the comfort and sanity of the West can support a group like Hamas, a group openly avowing genocide. If I may... Uh, clockwork or cabbage, if that's how you prefer to go do, go by. The genocide allegation is quite interesting. So I'll inject some Canadian content here because a, a couple of years ago, there was a report in Canada that was commissioned that accused the Canadian government of perpetuating an ongoing genocide against Indigenous women and girls. And uh, basically the context of this is that there has uh, been a large issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Uh, the perpetrators are almost exclusively Indigenous men. There is a, a lot of domestic violence uh, within that community, and it's tragic, but they, they basically made this narrative in which the Canadian government had taken insufficient action and therefore was perpetrating genocide. And it, it completely diminished and undermined what genocide is. But it was a, a term that sort of just got put there. And then Justin Trudeau, uh, who was the prime minister at the time, uh, stands up and says, I accept that this was genocide. So he basically admitted that his government was perpetuating genocide. And then he went on to win re-election, which is what a genocidal leader does, apparently. But the thing about that is that here we have a group whose stated purpose is the annihilation of Jews. And it's not uncommon to see on Western university and college campuses signs that say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And if you look at a map, you can see the river, which is the Jordan River on the east side of Israel, and the sea is the Mediterranean Sea on the west. And from the river to the sea is therefore everything in between, which is the entirety of the state of Israel. So that is literally a call for Genocide. It is a call for the annihilation of the Jewish state and the people in it, which is a feature and not a bug of Hamas's goals and hopes and plans.
So when we call things that are insignificant racist, for example, we diminish what racist means. When we call everyone a Nazi, we diminish what Nazi means. When we diminish, and I'm not saying that the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls problem is not a real problem, it is. But when we diminish the criteria and meaning of genocide, it becomes very difficult for people to recognize and deal and reckon with real calls to genocide, with things that on their face are calls for genocide. And I go back to that point I I made earlier on, which I, I think is actually the prevailing theme of this show, which is a society that revamps and and continuously reinvents what evil is cannot actually deal with real evil when it's staring them in the face, cannot even recognize real evil when it's staring them in the face. Saul Good writes, nothing to do with the horrific brutality of last weekend's attack and call me a bitter nationalist, but I can't for the life of me remember any cries of Je suis les États-Unis after 9/11. Now that our betters have made Iran a superpower, I wouldn't expect if it. I wouldn't expect it uh, if there were a brutal attack today either. The under 30 or under 40 crowd seems to be all in on the U.S. as an evil empire and needs to be degraded to a third world hellhole to atone. Narrative. Well, I wouldn't say it's nothing to do with uh, the brutality of last weekend's attacks. I, I think it is quite relevant, and I think it shows. The inconsistency of that. The the United States is a great punching bag for anyone and everyone in the world. But when a crisis happens, they all look to the United States and wonder why they're not providing the solution. So right now, you know, everyone would say, oh, this is terrible. Hamas, look what Hamas did. Look at how bad it is for Israel. They look to the U.S. and say, what are you going to do about it? And uh, that is, I mean, the story of the international scene. Everyone looks at the U.S. and gets so upset. Oh, no, Trump wants to pull out of the WHO or, oh, no, the U.S. is not paying this much for this group or donating this much to this group. Uh, But they spend the rest of every day of the year just talking about how terrible the United States is. And uh, that is, I think, the the great thing. And and Trump was the only one that really called the bluff on that, said, okay, fine, we'll just back out altogether. And Nikki Haley, not that I find she's a tremendous candidate for president, but I, I think she was a very good U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And I still remember, I can't remember which it was, but uh, the UN Security Council was uh, voting on some resolution condemning the US. I don't know if it was for moving the embassy or for doing something else to support Israel. And the US was the lone country to vote against this on the UN Security Council, the lone one of 15. But as it is a member of the Permanent Five, their vote killed the resolution. And Nikki Haley gave a a very, very uh, powerful speech as she delivered the lone no vote on condemning the United States. And I think it was all the better that she was there to do that. Uh, Kenneth writes, well, the conflict in the Middle East intensifies. The U.S. House of Representatives still does not have a Speaker of the House. Well, part of me thinks, uh, what is the, I I feel like there's a missing word here. Well, part of me thinks good they're all you well oh, i understand that okay well part of me says good they're all useless i know we do need a speaker any thoughts on that i i will admit uh kenneth i have not uh, brushed myself up on the latest of the speaker elections uh with everything else that's been going on in the past week i i know steve scalise ran and then apparently uh, dropped out of the race uh so who who is there now i think it's jim jordan and austin scott 
look, I, I don't actually think it matters. And, and I think, to be honest, I, I'm kind of a, a Westminsterite at heart in that I, I love that uh, Canada and the UK have speakers of the House who are pretty much anonymous because they're just so rarely relevant. Whereas in the US, the speaker wields uh, an influence that would be very foreign to most uh, Canadian or, Aust- or uh, British speakers. I, I'm trying to remember how it is in Australia. I think they're, they're very similar to, the, to Canada and the UK in that regard. But I also think it's very clear that the Republicans are still trying to figure out what they want to be. And I think that's been a part of the issue here is you still have this uh, battle between the it's not even a a Trump or never Trump thing. It's the battle between the swamp dwellers and those that want the Republican Party to be a, a genuinely conservative alternative to the Democrats. And I think that we're seeing right now the consequence of them not really having an answer to that question just yet. So uh, I I will be watching, but I can't bring myself to care because I think it's not going to really amount to a hill of difference in the general landscape of American politics. Uh, What else do we have here? Um, Joseph writes uh, this. Well, depending on how long it takes to uh, answer. Well, actually, this one from Pens. Pens Woods writes, Andrew, did you say Toronto police have a hate crime unit? That's unbelievable. No, it's not unbelievable. And, and you know, they, they are finding themselves looking into more and more things as perspective hate crime. And oftentimes it's something as insignificant as offensive graffiti on the side of a building, which I think more often than not is just a teen trying to be edgy but ends up, you know, getting a hate crime unit. And I think it's probably going to end up like in the UK at some point where uh, the SWAT team is smaller and has a slower response time than the hate crime unit. So if you misgender someone, you'll actually get like the nine cop cars on the street in front of your house. But if you're robbing a bank, they'll uh, send around some retired detective when they get to it. So that's where I fear things are, are going. But now I'll get back to Joseph's question. Andrew, any thoughts on how freedom of speech came to mean the freedom to produce or consume as much pornographic material as you like and to be as lewd or vitriolic as you want, but definitely not to engage in whatever political discourse you like, especially if you're overly critical of certain government policies or actions? I actually really enjoy that question, Joseph, because, you know, freedom of speech and this is where I disagree with John Stuart Mill on this, because John Stuart Mill wrote a very cogent defense of freedom of speech in On Liberty. But he was far too utilitarian for my liking, because Mill's entire approach to this was that freedom of speech is a vehicle for enlightenment, for betterment, for either finding a better solution to your own and learning your wrong for maybe creating a new position. You uh, find the middle ground between your position and an opposing position, or maybe you strengthen your own position and steal it against criticism by debating. But he was very focused on freedom of speech being a tool that enhances outcomes. And the problem I have with that is that I think freedom is not just a tool. It's a good in and of itself. I think free speech is good because it is free. And that means that speech that's not particularly useful or constructive must be defended, which means, you know, my right to go out on the street and say, you know, I like the Barbie movie or something, which I I know I got mercifully mocked for, uh, mercilessly mocked for a a few Q&As back. Uh, That's my right. It's not particularly constructive. It doesn't advance any discourse, but I have a right to say it. But it's interesting how the current 
landscape has kind of reversed this. They, they've taken like the anti-mill position to a new level because the only things that you're allowed to say are things that are of no consequence whatsoever or things that uphold the existing orthodoxy, that, that uphold or defend the cultural status quo. And it, it flies in the face of what courts have found. You know, for example, the Supreme Court of Canada has found that political speech is the most important speech because of how important it is. But in practice, political speech, speech that advances a position, is the most prone to censorship. So I, I don't necessarily know how it came about in each individual context and country and culture and society. But I think as a general point, it's because freedom of speech has been rejected as a way to upend the status quo. And, and that, you know, is a reversal of the Berkeleyite freedom of speech, which was that you need it to speak out against authority, to challenge authority, whereas now you have freedom of speech, but only to say certain things, which we know is not freedom of speech at all, but that is the uh, way it is manifesting. We are out of time here, but I, I see one question from Wayne Cunnington, and I actually met Wayne in London uh, a couple of years back, so I, or maybe it was a year back, I don't know. The years all blend together now, but I will read this question here and we'll end there because I, I like Wayne and I wanted to, I didn't want to leave at the last one before him lest there be a conspiracy afoot, he thinks. Uh, putting current matters of the shockingly brutal terrorist atrocities against the Israeli people aside for a moment, what's your thoughts on Kerry Johnson taking the reins at number 10 during COVID as revealed by the COVID inquiry's new batch of WhatsApp messages today? Startling stuff. So I just saw this before starting today. Yeah, apparently Kerry Johnson, Boris Johnson's uh, latest uh, latest plus one, uh, was like basically the de facto prime minister for a, a time on a couple of key things. And I was reading into this a little bit. And I haven't read all the text, but it was like the number 10 staff were complaining uh, because they didn't like how much power uh, she had. It was, I think, uh, Dominic Cummings and Simon Case that were texting back and forth about this. And on, on one hand, I actually think it's like an odd endorsement of her because with how many like women Boris Johnson's been involved with, it's like the fact that uh, this one, you know, had enough influence to just control the government or he was utterly disinterested in it uh, maybe is a, quite a compliment. But I, I guess my, my thinking on this is that it really doesn't matter. And I, I don't mean that in terms of the institutions of government, it doesn't matter. Like, the one thing I love about the UK is that the spouse of the prime minister is just the spouse of a prime minister. They don't have a title. They don't have an office. They don't have a staff. They're an ordinary person in the same way that the spouse of the Canadian prime minister is, is not really anyone with an official function. The problem, though, is that people will try to turn it into something. And what we saw here, regardless of whether it was Dominic Cummings or Boris Johnson or Kerry Johnson in charge, is that they were making the wrong decisions at every particular turn. And I think it's very convenient now, and I'm not saying it's not true, but I think it's very convenient now that we're starting to see this narrative emerge uh, very early on, but this narrative emerged that she was taking control. And I, I think it's by people that probably are trying to distance themselves from their own decisions of that era that are in part trying to say. So it wouldn't surprise me if she actually, you know, maybe weighed in at a couple of meetings, but really wasn't running the show in any meaningful way. But all these people who were running the show and did such a uh, piss poor job of it are just trying to find someone else to whom they can pass the buck. In
in uh, any case. That does it for us for today. I know it's been a uh, heavy show and a difficult show. If you are uh, one of the many Jewish members of the Mark Stein Club and Stein Online audience and you haven't yet uh, gone dark for Shabbat, let me say to you, Shabbat Shalom, and I stand with you, as do uh, many people around the world, and I would say anyone who matters around the world. So that does it. We will talk to you all soon here at Stein Online. Take care and have a great weekend. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.